Paul's letter to the Philippians, as we continue to be introduced to this letter, last week we kicked off by considering together the alternative society, the alternative society. And this morning we continue uh, being introduced to this letter and focus in on learning to think joyfully. Would you say that with me? Learning to think joyfully. Say it one more time. Learning to think joyfully. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, which is our focus text as we just begin to dig into being introduced to this letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, living out loud the gospel of the kingdom, going public. Philippians 1.27, above all, Paul writes, and at all costs, let your life, your manner of life, your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent from you, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Learning to think joyfully. Before we begin to zoom in on the text of this letter, as we will begin to do next Sunday, I want to continue just this morning to first have an overview of the letter as a whole, uh, an aerial view, if you will, or imagine this letter being spread out on a table in front of us. on a great single sheet, like a large map. What are the contours of this letter? What are its main points? What are its hills and valleys, if you will? In such an overview, the first thing that might strike you as you look over this letter is this jerky transition between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. The end of chapter 2 looks as if Paul is actually coming to the conclusion of his correspondence. He's talking happily about two of his colleagues who are going to be in Philippi soon. The first verse of chapter 3 has this, this word, in the, in the New Testament Greek that Paul uses, which could mean rejoice, but could equally mean farewell. Much like we might say, have a good day, as we are saying so long to someone. Have a good day, as a way of saying goodbye. So some have guessed that perhaps these are two letters that were put together by someone later on. And this, of course, is always possible. People started to collect Paul's letters early on. And it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that perhaps here and elsewhere there was some editorial stitching going on with the letter. The problem here, however, is that chapter 3 of Philippians is, as we will see, constructed very closely on the model of chapter 2. So that would suggest that this two-letter idea is not the case. It looks as though chapter 2, in fact, is the foundation of the letter, and chapter 3 is the superstructure of the letter. And what's more, the long closing paragraph, if you look at chapter 4, verses 10 to 20, Philippians only has four chapters in this letter. 
And remember, the chapters and the verses were something that the translators introduced. Paul didn't write this letter in chapters and verses. He wrote this letter much the way you and I would write a letter. In paragraph form, in prose, he wrote this letter. But as the translators sought to translate it and make it functional for us to read and study, they broke it into verses, chapters. And so Philippians only has four chapters. It's a very short book, this letter. And this long closing paragraph that Paul gives in verses 10 to 20 of chapter 4, it rounds off very nicely the theme of financial fellowship with which Paul opens this letter in chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. So again, that would suggest, no, there's some coherency here from chapter 1 to chapter 4. So it, it, it may not be two letters separately and then stitched together, as some have thought. There are many other wrinkles and arguments around this matter of jerky composition that we find in this letter to Philippians. And perhaps the best conclusion is that any appearance of this is due to the fact that Paul, after all, is writing this letter from prison. Far less than ideal circumstances for composing a nice, well-polished piece of prose. It is quite possible that he rounded off chapter 2 one day, reckoning that that was about it, about all he had to say. And then, as he contemplated and prayed that night, he realized that there were actually other things that he also wanted to say that would grow very naturally out of the foundation of this letter that he had written so far. Anyhow, at any rate, the point is this, loved ones. The point that we must grasp is that the main emphasis of this letter is about the Christ-shaped public life of the people of God. Living out loud the Gospel of the Kingdom. So after this long personal introduction in the first half of chapter 1, we arrive at a thematic statement in our text, which we've just read together. Chapter 1, verse 27. Your public behavior must match up to the gospel of the king. This introduces for us a very carefully constructed section which runs from chapter 1, verse 27 through to chapter 2, Verse 18. Imagine, if you will, just as, as we try to get an overview of this letter, imagine it in a V-shaped formation, as I've outlined for us on the screen. A carefully constructed whole, and chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, is structured in such a way that Jesus Himself, watch this, Jesus Himself and the death of the cross is at the very center of that whole large picture. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, is a poem of sorts, in fact. And we're going to study this passage together. But it's really a poem, a hymn, in fact, of the early church with balancing clauses, the one line in the middle which holds it all together. Yes, even the death of the cross. So the story of the Messiah with His crucifixion at its heart functions for us as the fulcrum around which not only the larger story of Jesus, but the whole of the church's public witness must turn. So down at the bottom of that V that you just saw, Philippians 2, verse 6 through to verse 11 serves as a fulcrum around which the larger story of Jesus, but 
even the whole of this letter and the whole of the church's public witness must turn on that fulcrum. Church unity, which Paul deals with in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Church holiness, which he deals with in chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. All in service of our public witness which he writes of in chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, and chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. And this is where we see something that is common and that is central to more or less all of Paul's letters. Not just this letter to the Philippians. In all of Paul's letters, you will notice he insists on unity and holiness. And on the suffering which will result due to that. And he does so because his blueprint for the church grows directly, almost poetically, out of the truth of Jesus. Jesus, the crucified and exalted One. Jesus, Israel's Messiah, the world's true Lord and King. So that the pattern of chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, the humiliation of Jesus and then his exaltation is to be for us the defining feature of church life in mutual submission, in abandonment of personal private agendas, and in obedience even where it's costly. And that forms the foundational substance of this long section from chapter 1, verse 27 through to chapter 2, verse 18. The central feature of those first two chapters. So already in this opening section, one of the main running themes all through Philippians becomes evident to us. And let's bear this in mind as we begin to zoom in and study the text of this letter that he writes to them in the coming weeks. One of the main running themes, Paul not only wants to teach the young church what to think, but how to think. Learning to think joyfully. Joy is known as one of the prominent themes of this letter. But not just joy in and of itself, but thinking joyfully. They are to think messianically, the Philippians. And are we. That is, they and we are to think about Everything, God, the world, themselves, shaped by and around Jesus. He is to be king of their lives. A fitting theme for us on this Christ the King feast day. Chapter 2, verse 5 sums it up with these words. Would you read them together with me? They're on the screen. Lift your voices, would you? You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And then Paul goes into this poem, hymn, that, that was very much a part of the worship life and the liturgy of the early church. The very attitude of Christ who made Himself a servant. And he begins to unfold that. And we'll look at that more closely in the coming days. This, loved ones, this is the vital heart center statement of this letter. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You must think messianically. Think and possess the attitude of Christ Jesus. It's the heart center statement of this letter. But the theme resonates out in all directions. 
As Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, another one of his letters written to the church in Corinth, he says, we have the Messiah's mind. We have the mind of Christ. In other words, we are being trained to think in new ways by the Holy Spirit. Our neural pathways, our habitual casts of mind are being redirected and channeled away from selfish ambition, moving out into the new patterns of humility and self-giving love. And this is central to Paul's letter to the Philippians and to us as these words speak into our life at this age and stage of the church. The results as we see displayed in Philippians and holding out an agenda as much for the 21st century as for the 1st century, the result is the community that not only speaks the truth to power, but that humbly lives the truth in the face of power. I don't think it comes as any surprise to any of us in the room that our world is full of power games. Whether in Myanmar or Moscow, Beijing or Baghdad, and indeed whether in, in Ottawa on Parliament Hill or Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. Our world is full of power games. The truth to power that is spoken can only be understood if it is spoken from a community that is living it in humility as the truth of a different kind of power and glory. We see examples of this in our history. As we look back, for instance, at the civil rights movement that took place in the United States, particularly as it was led by Martin Luther King Jr. And how he was insistent that it be a peaceful movement, speaking truth to power. This is a, this is a, a, a more contemporary, modern, still a little bit back in our history, but nonetheless, uh, a very close picture for us to get an idea of what Paul is talking about here. We must have the same attitude of Christ. We are to be as His people those who speak truth through power, but we are to do it in a different kind of way. We don't do power the way the world does power. We are to have the same mind and attitude of Christ. Because the truth to power that is spoken can only be understood if it is spoken from a community that is living it in humility as the truth of a different kind of power and glory. That's why I believe that what we recently saw here in Canada with this this convoy, this freedom convoy that we recently saw was so not the picture we're talking about here. And many who were a part of that identified as Christian. Sad to say. Paul is not saying that we are not to be people who speak truth to power, but he's talking about how we are to go about doing that. And it looks very differently from the way the spirit of the world would dictate it be done. And sadly, in the church, we have more of the spirit of the world directing us than the spirit of Christ and the attitude of Christ and the mind of Christ. What does his picture of speaking truth to power look like? All we need do is look at the cross. And that's where Paul directs us in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude is to be the same. Your, your way, the way you think 
is to be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then he begins to unfold to us what Christ did in that powerful poem in him of chapter 2. It's a different kind of spirit, a different kind of unity from the top-down, heavy-handed empire uniformity of some governmental styles and systems that we know of. Ultimately, it is a different kind of salvation. Caesar, for the Philippians, as Paul is writing to them, Caesar offered power, glory, unity, and salvation. But he offered it at a price. Jesus offers all of this in a newly invented way. And He Himself paid the price. Are you seeing the difference? The church must be able to live and speak out of this new reality that Jesus established. The reality of a new creation that has been launched and of which His followers are already a part. It is, in other words, a new way of being human. Paul says your attitude, your thinking, ought to be the same as that of Christ. Christ came. He became human and He demonstrated for us what a new humanity is to look like. A restored humanity. Paul would say it is the new way of being human. So after the carefully constructed and Messiah-centered appeal that he makes in chapter 1, verse 27, through to chapter 2, verse 18, Paul drops in an interlude about two co-workers, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And then chapter 3 begins with the rather strange verse that we noted before that seemed a little disjointed, but this gives way the second main section of the letter from chapter 3, verse 2, through to chapter 4, verse 1, which then draws out more fully both what it means and what it doesn't mean to belong to Messiah Jesus. There's a lot of good stuff in store for us here in this letter. A lot of stuff that speaks to this very day. It, it, it's like Paul just wrote this letter yesterday and he wrote it for us. What it means both to be and what it doesn't mean to be and belong to Messiah Jesus. And then he builds very closely upon chapter 2. Paul's self-description in chapter 3, verses 4-11 to is closely modeled on the poem of 2, verse 6-11. to So Paul lays out this picture of Christ. Here is what Christ did. Our attitude and our mind is to be the same of Christ. And here's what that looks like. And he lays out the condescension of Christ, the dying, the resurrection, and then the ascension to glory, the name above all names. He laid that out. And then get, Paul gets personal and he says, here's what this looks like in my life. Because he's trying to give us vivid, tangible pictures of what this is to look like. So that it, it's not just theory and words, but it's a real way of living. And he does that in chapter 3, verses 4 to 11, closely modeling it after the poem in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11 on Christ. And he comes to the statement of Jesus' coming sovereignty in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, that is similarly based on chapter 2, 9 to 11. But what is this section, chapter 3, verse 2? through to chapter 4, verse 1, all about, really. Paul offers three warnings 
But in each case, he uses them as a springboard for a fuller explanation of what belonging to Jesus actually means. So in chapter 3, verses 2 to 11, he is opposing those who, like his opponents, now, and don't get flustered, I know we're moving through these these references quickly. We're going to look at these more closely in the coming days. But we're getting an overview this morning, remember. In chapter 3, verses 2 to 11, he's opposing those who, like his opponents in Galatia, wanted to regard the movement of Jesus' followers as a sort of sub-branch of normal Jewish community. You may remember that his letter to the church in Galatia spent a great amount of time dealing with the matter of circumcision and whether as newly born Christ followers, they still had to hold to their Jewish cultural beliefs of circumcision in order to qualify as a child of God. And here he's, he's opposing in the same way those who like his opponents in Galatia, wanted to regard the movement of Jesus' followers as a sort of sub-branch of normal Jewish community. By the way, there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. Remember, Philippi was established as a Roman colony. But Paul is well aware, nonetheless, of Jewish opposition to his message in most places that he visits. For Paul, this is a matter of identity. Being the people of Christ and what that truly looks like. And discerning the identity of Jesus' followers isn't a matter of turning one's back on the Jewish world. That's not what Paul was advocating. Rather, it is a matter of recognizing that the heart of the Jewish hope, that Israel's Messiah has come at last, and that He is welcoming people from all ethnic and moral backgrounds into a newborn, renewed family that is characterized by faith. So Paul wasn't saying... The, the, the Jewish way of living and Judaism is, is, is turn your backs on that. There are still many things. No, he was saying there are still many things that, that, are, that pertain to this life. We're not talking about throwing our culture out the window and our ethnicity, but we're talking about how Christ Messiah has now brought fuller and greater meaning to that. And not just for us as a Jewish people, but for the world. Through us. To the world. Every people group. Every ethnicity. He's welcoming people from all ethnic and moral backgrounds into a newborn, renewed family that is characterized by faith. Childlike trust in Christ Jesus. And this family is therefore described as being in the Messiah. In the Messiah. As the family of God, as His sons and daughters, as His children, even us here together today, we are people in the Messiah. Knowing Him. Gaining Him. Sharing His koinonia. There's that word again that we looked at last week. Fellowship. And it's more than just sipping tea and eating biscuits. The sad, diminished view of what we have come to believe fellowship to be. Here we have in a microcosm Paul's doctrine of justification by faith. Which as elsewhere is rooted in and shaped by his study of Christ and a spurious kind or rather it results in for us a true clear vision of the church because it is completely based and grounded 
in Christ. And then he gives us a warning against a spurious kind of common identity which then leads to an emphasis on the true identity of the Messiah's people. So he deals in this letter with a false identity of what Messiah's people look like and the true identity. And how pertinent that is for us today. Because we have a false identity of what it means to be a Christ follower or a Christian in our day. And it's posed as looking like some of the scenes we see on our news feeds. But Paul says, no, there's a true identity of what it means to be people in Messiah. And it doesn't look like that. It looks like this. And he lays it out for us in this letter as we're going to see in the coming days and weeks. And then in chapter 3, verses 12 to 16, Paul warns against any supposition that one might have already arrived. As being Christ followers, as being people in Messiah, that we have arrived, that we have made it, that we are it. Just because we are already in Messiah by baptism and faith, that doesn't mean we are now complete. Hello? How many are grateful for that? God's not finished with us. We are still works in process. Works in progress. Yeah? Hello? If you think you're already there, sorry to shatter your bubble today. But we are not yet complete. We live our lives in the tension of already but not yet as kingdom people. Paul himself isn't complete in that sense, as he makes clear in this letter. Again, he refers to his own position with these words. He is pressing on toward the goal. I'm not there yet, he said, but I press on. And then finally in chapter 3, verse 12, through to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul warns against the licentiousness which it seems some of Jesus' followers had embraced. Perhaps demonstrating that they were now free from the law. There was a stream of people who believed that because of grace, grace, was, grace to them, God's grace was this license to just do whatever they wanted. Live however they wanted. And Paul says, no, that's not what it looks like to be people in the Messiah. For Paul, to think that way is a radical mistake. The life of heaven has already arrived on earth. Jesus Himself will return to this earth to join the whole of creation together and to raise His people to new resurrected bodies, to a life which they must now anticipate in the present. Not, of course, by this idea of grace as license, this licentiousness, but by appropriate holiness. Grace empowers us to live as the people in Messiah who live as the kingdom is already here, but yet not fully yet arrived. This tension we live in. Between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of our own bodies that we anticipate. We anticipate it now, but we know it has not yet happened. So we feel this tension of what it means to live as the people of Christ. And this is how they are to think, Paul says. This is how they are to live. 
This is to govern how they are to stand and how they are to stay true to the Lord Messiah. As he says in chapter 4, verse 1. So in each case, Paul is exploring further what it means to be folded within and shaped by the messianic narrative of Jesus. The story of Jesus. The past events concerning Him. Concerning Jesus. And by the personal presence of Jesus. His ongoing, sustaining fellowship that He keeps with us here and now. That we celebrate and embrace and participate in in the Eucharist as we recently looked at. And all of this enables them, Paul says, and enables us to learn to think messianically. As he says in chapter 3, verse 15, those of us who are mature should think like this. And if they get the thinking right, Paul is saying, everything else will follow. When we begin to think like Jesus and have the attitude of Jesus in our hearts and in our minds, everything else will follow. We'll begin to live like Jesus. Live out loud the Gospel of the Kingdom. And from here, the letter turns to particular exhortations in chapter 4 and to extended thanks for the money that the Philippians have sent to him while he's in prison. You remember I told you that, that in Paul's day, to be put in prison was basically to be forgotten unless you had family or friends that knew you were there and would care for you and bring you the provisions that, that were needed. And this is what the Philippians are doing for Paul. And, and these things are important in themselves as they demonstrate the heart and attitude of Jesus. The question of the money is a frame for the whole letter. But the central substance of what Paul is saying is found in those two great sections that we're going to look at closely in the coming weeks. Chapter 1, verse 27 through to chapter 2, verse 18 and chapter 3, verse 2, through to chapter 4, verse 1. It's all about Jesus. Would you say that with me? It's all about Jesus. Jesus as Lord. Jesus as the crucified and risen One, reigning and returning. Jesus as the One we know as we share in what Paul designates the fellowship the koinonia, the partnership of His sufferings. Chapter 3, verse 10. Wow, doesn't that give us a whole new picture of what fellowship is? Very far removed. Not even in the same universe as sipping tea and eating biscuits. The koinonia, the fellowship of His sufferings. I want to know Him, Paul says, in the power of His resurrection, in the fellowship, the koinonia, the partnership of His sufferings. The Eucharist, when we share it together, walks us through that. We participate in Christ. In other words, what we find in chapter 2, verses 6-11, to the exhortation to be Jesus-shaped in our thinking and in our attitudes, and then the exposition of of that shape in the great poem of this same passage, chapter 2, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Paul has himself thought through what it means to have the mind of the Messiah. And he is eager to inculcate the mind of his hearers, the Philippians, and us here today. And this is something that every generation has to work at afresh. 
Church history shows that no generation can rest on the laurels, the victories, the successes of the past. New problems arise. Yeah? New challenges from unexpected directions. All we have to do is think about this recent pandemic. Who would have thought? Only by learning to think messianically, to think joyfully, to have the mind and attitude of Christ, can we find our way through to the public witness to living the Messiah's life in the face of the watching world. And it does not look at all like arrogant, obnoxious picketers and truck convoys and all of these things that we see and equate with speaking truth to power. Paul surprises us in Philippians because it looks very differently. And now, in light of all of this, it might sound as though Philippians is quite a long letter in light of every, this overview. But as I said, it's obviously a very short letter. In fact, it's one of Paul's shortest. But there is much more. There is much packed into this letter. Paul has injected quite a lot of autobiography here in chapter 1 and chapter 3. And he does this not to hold himself up as special, but to show what a cruciformed self-understanding looks like. Remember, he says, here's what Jesus showed us. And then he goes on, and here's what this has come to look like in my life. So when Paul says things to us like, follow me as I follow Christ, that's not an arrogant statement for Paul. In fact, it's one of great humility and brokenness. Because he's saying essentially, follow Christ in me. The cruciformed life of Christ that is resident in me. Follow that. And so he's not lifting himself or holding himself up as, as some great example, but he's trying to show in a very personal way, here's what a cruciformed self-understanding and life looks like. And then, of course, the conclusion, thanks for the money, a lot of reflection on his own situation that he's currently in. Why does he say all of this? Partly, he says it to bring them up to date, to make them aware of how he was doing, much like we would do in any letter we would write to loved ones and friends. He does this to express gratitude, but also to reassure them, knowing that they would have been worried about how he was doing with an extended stay in prison. And if he was in Ephesus, which I addressed last week, he was in prison in Ephesus, not in Philippi, that would be worse, knowing the terrible time that he had experienced in his ministry there. And within all of this, there are one or two key sayings. In chapter 3, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul is aware that the Philippian church needed to look to him as the principal model of what thinking and living messianically ought to look like. They need to remember his entire lifestyle to think through what it means to follow his example. So the letter divides up in a reasonably straightforward way. We have an opening greeting in chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Then Paul's prayer in chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. An explanation and reflection on his situation with some fascinating remarks about death and the life beyond. In chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, the main exhortation of the first half of the letter, he showcases Timothy and Epaphroditus, he gives warnings, he gives encouragement, thanksgiving, and then he concludes. So what might the challenge 
of Philippians be to us then, right now, here today, in 2022? We've just come through a pandemic where we have been severely restricted. Not so bad as being in prison in Ephesus, but not much fun either, was it? And we trust we won't have to enter into that again in the near future. It's a good time for us to reflect on our challenges, on our identity on our obligations, on our need to learn to think messianically. You know, one of the things that I think the pandemic showed us as the people of God, as, as the church, as local churches, it showed us how well or how not so well we were doing with making disciples. It was very defining for us at many levels. And I think we ought to reflect on these things and learn from them. Our challenges, our identity, not only as, as individual followers of Jesus, but as the people of God together. Because we don't just follow Jesus individually. In fact, our faith is not an individual faith. It's a personal faith, but it is a community faith. It is a koinonia faith. What does it mean for us to think messianically? And in particular, this is urgent at a time when the role of the church, the role of the church here in the 21st century before the watching world has become quite ambiguous. The news media have been quick to pounce on the fact that the recent uh, violent events in, in the U.S., you remember the, the rushing on Parliament Hill, to pounce on the fact of this freedom convoy that we saw here in Canada, appeared to include, and the media loves to pounce on this, that these things appeared to include uh, some claims to Christian commitment. It's a time of reeling that we live in, trying to figure out what is going on and what it all means. How to distinguish truth from conspiracy theories and above all, what it means to keep loyal to Jesus when the pressures of the world around push and pull us in every direction. So there are many things that Paul would no doubt love to have said to the little church in Philippi that he founded. But his situation in prison means that he is not in a position to say most of them. So what does he do? He focuses on their need to think for themselves in the light of Jesus the Messiah. Because he concludes that if I can challenge them with that, then everything else will fall into place. If they learn how to think messianically, how to think joyfully like King Jesus, everything else will follow. So that's what he addresses. After all, you've heard the, the mantra, no doubt, give someone a fish and you feed them for a day. Teach someone to fish and you feed them for life. Paul was thinking this way. If I teach them how to think like Jesus, everything else will follow. Give someone an instruction and you might help them through that day. Teach them to think messianically, to think according to the Jesus pattern which Paul had sketched out and exemplified and himself embodied to the Philippians and you will help them discern and follow Jesus into pathways as yet unknown. 
Loved ones, we face all kinds of new and unexpected challenges nationally and internationally. The question ought to be, what is God calling the church to be in the next generation? How are we called to be a part of that? How can our common life in our various fellowships and denominations be part of God's purpose to display before the watching world the strange new truth of a way of being human that the world was not expecting and may not entirely welcome? What would it mean in our own autobiographies, personal and corporate, to think messianically, to imitate Paul as he imitates the Messiah? What would it mean for us, as he says in chapter 3, verse 10, to know Him in the power of His resurrection and in the fellowship and partnership of His suffering? The koinonia of the Eucharist. In all this, the two running themes that flow through Philippians ought to intrigue and inspire and challenge us. Paul insists on a new kind of thinking and a new kind of joy. We tend to associate thinking with serious intellectual work and associate joy with letting our hair down and being relaxed in an easygoing way. But Paul holds them both together in tension. Paul is good with tensions creating these tensions for us in our understanding of what the kingdom of God is all about. And he does the same here. He holds both joy and thinking together in tension. And as we consider the challenge of being the church before the watching world, of living the gospel of the kingdom out loud, May we discover, this is my prayer for us in this series, may we discover thinking can be joyful and joy can be thoughtful. It is all a part of a new, true way of being human centered upon and energized by King Jesus Himself. That is is the primary message of this letter to the Philippians and to us.